Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. The Slaughter podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, vote for us in the British Podcast Awards. If you Google British Podcast Awards vote, you can vote for us in the Listener's Choice Award anytime before 5pm on the 28th of April. All you need is an email address. So if you've got friends who also have email addresses, spread the love. Give us a treat. Hi guys. Hello there. Welcome to episode 25 of Slaughter. We're still making them. <laughs> Can't stop us. Still knocking them out. Um, so this week we're back to doing two stories for your listening pleasure. And I'm going to kick us off with two people as well. Oh shit. William Burke and William Hare. Will and Will. Yeah. I mean that's good for people with bad memories because you don't have to remember people's names when you've met them. I will only be friends with people with my own name. <laughs> That's been my philosophy for most of my university years. It is true. <laughs> Trying to organise Lucy's Hendu. I'm like, right, so I've messaged Lucy, but I also need to talk to Lucy, and then Lucy's sleeping over, and they've all got the same bloody name. My Hendu's tomorrow, and Emma's organised it, and I'm so excited. Next week, if Lucy's doing this podcast on her own. <laughs> it didn't go well. It didn't go well, yeah. So excited. So, William Burke and William Hare. Um, both of them were actually um, born in Northern Ireland, but committed over 16 murders in Scotland during a 12-month period. So I'll start off with William Burke. He was born in County Tyrone in Northern Ireland in 1792, and he was from a poor but respectable working-class family. At age 19... He left to join the army and 
One of the books I read said he left to either become a fifer or a drummer. Which basically means he joined the band, but... Could he play both and then... It's like, he had big hands and beautiful lips, so he must have either played the fife or the drum. (laughs) No trumpet for you, William Burke. But that's what he did. He was in the band, they think. And during service, he managed to get married and had two children. That's now how I'm going to introduce anyone who's been married. I'm going to say they managed to get married. I know, I was thinking that. I always do that. Just just dripping in those little bits of pain that I constantly (laughs) feel. He managed to get married and had two kids. He then left the army after seven years. And in 1818, he abandoned that family and moved to Scotland. What? So he was like, sick of you guys, clean slate, moved away. I think so. I mean, we can only really speculate, but I think the settled family life just wasn't what he was after. He would have been quite married quite young, and to have two kids straight away, he probably thought, you know what, this isn't what I need. That's pretty brutal, because the family unit was set up for man, work, woman, look after children. Yeah, we don't really know what she did with them afterwards. Yeah. She became Mary Ann Cotton. Just and bumped them up. <laughs> disposed of them. Done. Um, But he went to be a labourer on the Union Canal, which is a big undertaking, and lots of labourers came from all over, but particularly from Ireland. And he also learnt to repair shoes in his spare time. Everyone's got shoes. Everyone needs... Yeah, you've got to cobble. Just keep cobbling. Mm. So while he was in Scotland, he met a lady called Helen MacDougall, and it said that she... (laughs) That sounds like a joke name. (laughs) I'm Helen MacDougall. (laughs) of the Dougal clan although she was Scottish so but it's said that she possessed no beauty oh I think it it said possessed no beauty in any way which is pretty harsh I mean everyone's got something yeah everyone's got nice skin or nice eyes yeah you can usually pick out something like you have lovely eyebrows yeah that's what I like most about you they're on fleek well, let's not go overboard loose, but... Students told me my eyebrows were piff the other day. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Piff. Lit. Is that what they say, or are you just saying piff. slang now? <laughs> These are words that they use, and I don't understand. Linking. They're all linking. Like meeting up with each other. Like getting it on. Oh. Well, I think it's like talking with the... Like flirting. Like if you're messaging someone, oh, I'm linking so-and-so. I think so. Ooh. Mm. New words. But she had no beauty, yet she had some. She had something about her. So the person who wrote it thought she had no beauty, but maybe she possessed a little something hidden. Sorry, I'm just pointing at my own vagina. Like <laughs> <laughs> what she had a vagina. I assume had a vagina. That's I guess that's what he was into. Or she was super clever and funny and interesting, and they had a spiritual bond that went beyond physical beauty. That's possible. Hmm. It was a man that wrote the book. So, but it's also thought that she. As well as William Burke, she also had a spouse and two children that she'd abandoned to go and live with Burke. Things in common. So they both had this spontaneous whirlwind affair and both of them had left families and I think it sort of drew them together. So they lived together and they had a bit of an unstable time originally. They moved to Edinburgh in 1827 and they were staying in lodging houses and Burke did various things. He would started do using his cobbling skills that he picked up. They also traded in human hair. Oh. I'm not quite sure how you start up a human hair business. You'd, I'd imagine you'd have a lot of friends, like, can I have your hair? Can I have your hair? What did they do? Just go around snipping. Like, snip and run! 
Yeah, I reckon they targeted children. They've got soft, luscious locks. Just give them a pixie cut. I'd like to think they went down the slash and dash vein and shouted, snip and run, <laughs> as they did it. They also, Burke also tried farm work and a bit of hedging and ditching. What's ditching? Digging ditches. What's hedging? Climbing hedges. <laughs> Cutting hedges! That's more logical. Cutting hedges, digging ditches. Not just rolling into ditches. So it's, um, he's described as being a neat man of five foot five. That's important. And this is one of my favourite descriptions of a human says he's well-proportioned legs and thighs. He was round-bodied, but not narrow-chested, with moderately-sized hands and vigorously necked. I mean, basically, he just described all the body parts a human has. <laughs> like, he has arms that were long. He had legs that went from the floor to his bottom. I mean, that is not a description of anyone. That's just a description of a human. What is a moderately-sized hand? If it was on a dating profile... I'd say fair enough. Like, are there enough... Has a big-handed person or a small-handed person, has that ever been an issue to where you need to say someone has moderate hands? Like, don't panic. His hands weren't enormous. He couldn't grab a loaf of bread in one. Definitely not a melon. That's a two-hander. He had to two-hand every melon he came across. Um, Also, vigorously necked. Vigorously necked? Vigorously necked. I read it several times. Vigorously necked. I mean, it is almost like he's doing the sassy head move. He hadn't disgusting amount of neck vigorously like it's attacking like like it's coming for you he walked neck first (laughs) chin back neck first that's how you approach people and a hard forehead as well (laughs) he's nutting people that you only know someone's got a hard forehead if you've been headbutted by them but he was known as a christian man and he was often seen carrying his bible in hand which is basically what you do if you're a right wrong and you want people to think you're nice yeah because I know a lot of Christians and they don't carry their Bibles around. Who needs a Bible on the go? No one. You memorise that shit. <laughs> ready to spout it at people. That's why you've got the Lord's Prayer. You don't have to learn the rest. Yeah, you're good. You're it's good to go. <laughs> covers everything. William Hare, as I mentioned, he was also born in Northern Ireland. And he also moved to Scotland around 1818 to work on the Union Canal. They didn't meet whilst they worked there. They could have done, but that's not... Uh, where they became friends. Uh, It was later when they lived in Edinburgh. Hare was described as being an uneducated, brutal sort of man. He was thin, he was nervous, and he was generally quite aggressive. He was particularly a nasty drunk. Oh, no. I can imagine him now, one of those scrawny, kind of, bit raggedy guys who goes out, gets hammered, wants to fight everyone. Yeah. And he was known to wear colkers. Do you want to take a guess at what a colker is? A kind of shoe? Ooh, yes! It is. Platform. Look at her cobbling knowledge! <laughs> You've cobbled before, haven't you? <laughs> um, no, not a platform. But it's like a steel-toed pointed shoe, it said. And there was one particular incident with a guy named McLean where after a, they'd been out drinking together and then they got into some sort of argument... And Hare kicked his legs out from underneath McLean and then booted him right in the face with his steel-toed boots. And apparently his jaw was properly messed up. There's not as much known about William Hare as Burke because when they were arrested, Burke gave his full life story and Hare didn't. He didn't. He wouldn't say anything about his past before Edinburgh. 
which leads many people to speculate that he's probably been in trouble before. Wasn't there a cartoon called Burke and Her? You're thinking of Bucky O'Hare. <laughs> Bucky O'Hare. <laughs> um, Close enough. Yeah, that'll do. So, um, William Hare, he lived with a lady named Margaret Laird, who was a widow, but took the name Margaret Hare, even though they weren't legally married. So neither of Burke, neither Burke nor Hare were legally married to their partners. Burke because he was still married, and Hare because they didn't fancy her. I've already done it once. But, um, yeah, exactly. Why bother? It's fucking effort, isn't it? It is effort. <laughs> a lot of effort. So, um, Margaret Laird and her husband had run a boarding house in the Westport area of Edinburgh. And when he died, Hare moved in and they ran it together. Eventually, William Burke and Helen MacDougall would move in about a month before they took their first step into the murdering business. So they met when Burke and his mistress moved into lodgings on the same street initially as their boarding house. And in November of 1827, there was an old man living in the Hare's boarding house called Mr. Donald. And he died of the dropsy while he lived there. But when he died, he hadn't managed to pay all of his bills and he owed the Hare's four pounds. So William and William were sat talking about what they were going to do. Like, we've got to get money back from him. But once he's gone and buried and everything else, we're not going to be able to claim anything back. So they decided that what they would do is take the body of Donald and sell it. Ah, we've seen this before. Yes. In Scotland as well. Yes. So they decided to sell it to a doctor, Robert Knox, who would use the body in his anatomy classes. So once they'd the coffin had been placed by the carpenter, they unnailed the top of it, took out unnailed. the body. Is that the technical Can you, how, what do you I do? Just, I'm just unnailing these nails. You used the back end of a hammer. Yeah. Pl- plied it open? Pried it open? I think it's called unnailing. I'm gonna I've been unnailed. <laughs> I'm unnailed every week. And they, so they unnailed the coffin. I'm sticking with it. They unnailed the coffin and they packed it with Tanner's bark, which, to keep it weighted, I guess, was the idea. But bark is little and gritty. And as soon as you picked up that coffin, you'd imagine that you'd hit like a fucking rainmaker shaking around all over the place. Wet washing. Heavy as fuck. What's wet washing? No, wet washing that's wet. Oh! (laughs) You mean you don't just throw your clothes over the fence and buy new ones? No. Oh, I've been doing it wrong. Uh, Yeah, but that's what they chose to fill it with. Rocks, even. Just a massive... Anyway, that's what they chose. And they earned for that body £7.10, which was... Decent. A few thousand in today's money. Got some decent dollar for that. So, at the time, Scotland had just been through the Scottish Enlightenment, where... There were great advances. In- they started reading. They started reading shit. They were like, do you know what? These books might be used for something better than firewood. They were, there were great advances in science and medicine in particular. And one of the main ways that they were learning about anatomy and physiology of humans was through dissections. And obviously, the fresher the bodies, the better they taught you about what they were doing. 
but by law at the time, any cadavers that were used for dissection had to be an executed criminal, and each medical establishment was only allowed one per year. So that was it. Like, you got one body of a weird old criminal, and that's all you had. Basically, you're constantly looking at the effects on a body of a person who's been hung. Like, mm. you ha- you're not seeing other things. So body snatching at the time was sort of an open secret. It was happening a lot. Like, universities and schools and things were dissecting more bodies than they were supposed to. But many authorities sort of turned a blind eye to it. Saves on very own. So Edinburgh at the time was becoming known as a centre of excellence in the medical field. And in fact, throwback to a couple of episodes ago, Thomas Neil Cream, actually, although he studied in Quebec, he also travelled to London, he made the effort to go up to Edinburgh as well because their qualifications were just so well-renowned. He wanted to see all the deadens. Defo. Also at the time, so it was rarely the rich and powerful people that were the ones who were being snatched, mainly because they could afford either people to guard the graveside until the body was a bit manky, or they could afford for iron poles or concrete or things to be put in place so they couldn't be snatched. Criminals at the time, the ones that weren't being given for dissection, if they were executed, it was common practice that they would be publicly displayed and suspended on chains for a few days so until their bodies weren't really good for anything else it's like when you leave a sofa outside your house hoping someone was going to take it for you yeah this is too shit to put anywhere else i'm pretending it's not happening i remember moving to birmingham and being like oh wow like people a lot of people have sofas in their gardens that's such a cool (laughs) idea I thought it was just like some bohemian practice where everyone wanted to sit outside in a sofa. It wasn't. It was drugs. (laughs) So, as well, many criminals, if given... Although it it wasn't actually allowed at the time, you couldn't donate your body to medical science. There was no way that you could say, I want my body to be donated. But And even criminals at the time wouldn't want to be one of the ones dissected. A lot of people were still quite superstitious and it was believed that if you were dissected, then come the resurrection day, um, you'd be left roaming the earth, wandering around looking for your the bits of your body. I always think it's funny when... Because Jesus doesn't like you <laughs> if you're in bits. He likes pure, whole humans. <laughs> I always think it's funny when people um, donate their organs, but there's always something specific that they don't want. Like, I don't want anyone to have my eyes. Eyes is a really common one. But why? But you're not going to be an eyeless ghost. That's not how it works. My mum said that. She's donated everything apart from her eyes. I think the most selfish thing you can do... Keep your eyeballs. ...is not be an organ donor. You're not using that shit. That could save a life. That is true. There's no good reason. People should have to opt out, I think. Let's make it happen on slaughter. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just staying because I thought it was going to be a joke, and I was like, "No, that's a really good point, it's Lucy. True. It is fucking true. I feel very strongly about this. Yeah, I actually haven't signed up for a donor card <gasps> yet. I need to do it. How can I do such a thing? Um, I think you just Google become an organ donor. Did you not do it when you got your provisional license? Yes, I did. Tick all the boxes. I'm organ donating. I remember now. Yep, you can have it. Murder away. If you want this heart, it's small. It's cold. But it could be yours. Never been a smoker. <laughs> Never been a smoker. <laughs> um, 
It's like we're trying to sell your organs now. They're good. How much for the liver? Come on. I'm not using all of it. The liver's probably shot. Yeah, the liver shit. The kidneys, amazing. Lots of water. So much water. Mixed with margin. (laughs) If it's clear, it's fine. Yeah, that's the rule. Gin goes right through. Um, some of the more upmarket cemeteries, though, and the higher classes would ha- pay for watchtowers to be built. It wasn't something that people liked to happen. But also, there was another law at the time where a corpse was not considered... It was no longer considered a human. Like, it wasn't a crime against a living human. And it wasn't considered property. So you could be charged with the trespassing and the great part of the grave digging but if you were caught in the street with a dead body and they couldn't prove you dug a grave to get it you couldn't you there wasn't really a crime for that (laughs) you just carry dead people you technically couldn't steal a dead body it wasn't considered property so it's more the trespassing charge but if you couldn't prove you'd nicked it from a grave you were golden no way which allowed for partly allowed for this to happen so we just heard about Donald that they took so obviously this dead body and this one they were in the clear with really they it was died of natural causes though they could take the body really and sell it it didn't belong to anyone in particular so they weren't stealing it but because they'd got so much money from it the next time uh, they had an older gentleman come to the lodging house they thought do you know what we could probably do this again so in December of 1827, an old lodger called Joseph, also known as Joseph the Miller, also known as Joseph the Mumper. <laughs> I looked up Mumper. It's a kind of... It's apparently it's like just a kind of beggar. Someone's like, Mumpa, Mumpa. Yeah. No surname for you. I mean, he can't have been that much of a beggar. He was in a hope, like, lodging house. It's nice. It's nicer than beggar, isn't it? I I don't like the word hobo. I always think that's a bit offensive. Or tramp. I, I always tell my kids off for saying tramp. And they go, what? I love a tramp. Homeless person. No. That's not degrading. He's a harmless mumper. He's a mumper. Mumpapa. You're right. Mumpapa. <laughs> so he became ill. And the group that Burke, his lady... William Hare and Margaret Hare, they were eager for him to hurry up and die. <laughs> so this time they just eased into a little bit more by saying, well, you know what? We'll just help this one along on the way. He's going to die anyway. We'll just make it a little bit faster. So the way that they did it is they decided to suffocate him. And this was a technique that Burke and Hare would use again and again on pretty much all of their murders, where they would hold him down and restrain him by one of them putting their full weight on his chest, then the other one would put their hand over his mouth and hold his nose to try and do as little damage to the body as possible so they could get the most money while also killing him. Yeah, it's weird because it's almost backwards to what you normally do. Normally, when you kill someone, you're trying to hide the body, whereas this one... They're doing it for the body. We want all of it present. And this actually became known as burking in the end. Now, I tried this on... (laughs) You tried to suffocate a person. I tried to suffocate Will, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he tried to suffocate me. (laughs) Look, you don't have to share your weird sex games on this podcast. Well, because... Okay, so it was 
thinking that, you know, strangling someone is a really brutal, long thing to do. Suffoca- so we'll give it a suffocating with your own bare hands must be tricky. So I was like, let me just see how easy it would be. But the, tri- the tricky part is getting the hand over the mouth so that you can't still be opening your mouth. I was really good at it. I've got a te- <laughs> I, I worked out a technique. No, I was good at surviving. Oh. I've got a technique to help anyone. If you're getting burked and the hand's over the mouth, lick the palm of their hand. It's rank. No one wants the hand licked. <laughs> they let go immediately. Winner. Oh, it's rank for you though. If I, if you put your hand Sweat over my fingers. mouth, if you put your hand over my mouth now and I licked it, you won't want to lick this. Yeah, but you won't want to feel it licked either. Fake Would you hold it there and be like, "Yeah, lick me"? Fake tan and shame. Let me lick your hand. You don't want to lick that. Let me lick your hand. Would you let me lick your hand? No. See, of course you wouldn't. I'm gonna survive. Long story short. I want to lick your hand. Lick people's hands if you want to survive. Also, there's vital salt in there that can keep you alive. If you <laughs> so they very much eased in. The first time, they just found the body. The second time, he was old and ill. They knew he was dying. So they just decided, you know, it doesn't make harm to go a Gradual bit further. Gradual commitment. This is how Milgram got and... his patients to electric shock everyone. Yeah. And then now, they've one, there's one quote from one of the Williams which said, well, we might as well get hung for a sheep than for a lamb. So basically, if we're doing... And for a bunny and for a pound. Pretty much. They were like, eh, we're doing it now. Well, if we did an almost murder, we might as well do a lot of real murders. Exactly. No one's going to believe that we did almost murders. So we might as well do it. So in February, they killed three people this time. One was Abigail Simpson, who was a salt peddler. Oh, vital licking hands. Licking. There was an unnamed Englishman and an old woman. So the the accounts of the murders come from basically both Burke and Hare's testimonies at the trial. So a lot of them they couldn't really remember their names. So the ones we know their names is if Burke or Hare remembered their names. So if it was a strange person and they just they were like, oh I think there was an older woman. I think there was a man with an English accent. Neither of their stories tallied up completely, so there could very well be loads more murders that they haven't actually mentioned. And it's thought that they, these people were lured in through the boarding house, and that is was really the front for it, because in the boarding house it's people that are coming, they don't really have any friends or family, they're transient, mm. they're new to the area, people won't miss them. So if someone came to stay the night and was new, no one's going to know when you bumped them off the next day. So in April... 8th of 1928 two girls mary patterson and janet brown they were friends and they were also sex workers they'd moved to edinburgh and they met burke and he invited them both back to the tanner's close house for drinks i think he probably thought pretty well of himself there and so they had a really good time got them absolutely blind drunk mary eventually passed out and fell asleep and it Apparently, Janet said that Burke and Hare began to have a weird little bickering argument. And she thought, this is a bit awkward. She was like, I'm just going to go now and I'll get Mary in the morning. She basically just like backed out slowly. (laughs) So she returned the next day to go and pick up Mary. But she was told that, oh, she's just gone out with Burke. Um, She'll be back later. So Mary waited. And then after Burke came back without Mary... She was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just go then. Unfortunately, Mary had never left the house. She had been burked and then hidden in a tea chest 
until that evening when she could be sold off to Dr. Knox. There was also old Effie, another a beggar and a woman that was found drunk on the street, unnamed woman that they've met, just brought her back. So very opportunistic at this point. People that they thought wouldn't be missed, they were getting. After this period, William Burke went on a little holiday and took a break from it. And when he came back, he fought with Hare because he thought that while he'd been gone, he'd been killing other people and selling them and not, obviously he wasn't getting a cut of the money. What? And what? You weren't there. He wasn't there. So he'd moved out of the boarding house then and and William and Helen went to live somewhere else after this argument. But they did carry on doing business together. June 1828, greed really started to take over. And whereas they'd been very carefully targeting loners and people that wouldn't be missed before, they began to slip up slightly. And this began, there was an older woman staying in the lodging house with her grandson. And the grandmother actually died from an overdose of painkillers. But so that they could remove and sell her body without suspicion, they'd also have to dispose of the 12-year-old grandson. And, yeah. And Hare, for whatever reason, didn't do this the usual way. He actually took the boy over his knee and was able to break his back. Oh, God. And apparently, not all sources say this, but many sources say that the boy was actually deaf and mute. So unless he was shit hot at Pictionary, he wouldn't really have been spreading this around to anybody else. In the same month, there was Mrs. Ostler, who was a local laundry woman, and she was sort of friendly with um, the Burks, and she would be regularly in and out and about various local places, delivering, collecting, washing... And she was lured into the boarding house when some of the neighbours all got together there to celebrate the birth of a new baby. Old women can't pass that up, no matter what. So once the party was over and she was slightly tipsy, everyone else had gone home, she was burked and sold the next day. Earlier that summer, possibly when Burke was on his little holiday, he'd met one of Helen McDougall's cousins, Anne McDougall, and had, as you do, said, oh, well, come up and stay with us in Edinburgh, like, any time you want. So she had come up to visit them, but being family didn't really get in the way. She was up there, no one would know what was happening to her, so they took the opportunity to suffocate her cousin for £10. Surely people would start getting suspicious at some point. The many people who go on to be, who are serial killers, like, do so because they're not getting caught. Like, they do. you do the first few, you're not getting caught, and then you start to get more cocky, more confident, and make bigger risks. But were they selling these bodies to one person? Yes. They that... were selling it to Dr. Robert Knox in particular. So he must have been suspicious. I think he probably knew. Why are you getting... Yeah. And didn't really care, to be honest. He would have students pay to come to his classes, and so for him, the more bodies he was getting it was almost competitive at the time that he was getting more dissections over Mm. a particular doctor dr munro who was nearby and so for him if you ask no questions and life's going well for you um, but like i said they began to get more confident the next person they took care of was a local sex worker called mary haldane and she was really well known around the grass market area and her granddaughter 
once her grandmother disappeared, Peggy, she actually went straight and confronted Hare, which says there must have been rumours mm. or definitely people who were saying, you know, he was the last person to be seen with her. Yeah. But she went straight to him and confronted him, asking where she was. But, of course, this led to her, in turn, being oh, suffocated God. and sold to Knox. So rumours now were starting to happen because people had noticed that the Haldanes were missing. They were well-known people in the area. Mm. So possibly because of this, they took a break until October of that year when they picked another well-known figure. This victim was a James Wilson, also known as Daft Jamie. Now he had considerable learning difficulties and a club foot. But he was a very pleasant soul, and at the age of 18, he was loved by many of the locals. He was one that everyone seemed to just enjoy, basically. Harmless and a sweetie. So a catalyst for even further suspicion was that once Jamie's body had been sold and taken to Dr. Knox, many of the students in the theatre recognised yeah, him on say, the table you'd see you'd know his foot surely and well, yeah if he was a local guy you'd know his face now one documentary that I watched they said that he cut off his head and foot so that people wouldn't recognise him oh, God. but all of the others said, all the other sources that I looked at said that he just started to dissect on his face first mm. so that people wouldn't be able to see it was him the 31st of October would be their final victim Halloween And their last victim was a lady called Mary or Marjorie. Marjorie was a Sunday name. Um, Mary Doherty. She'd met Burke and he'd invited her back to the house, pretending that he was a distant relative. So they basically met and she'd she'd gone, what's your name? Mary Doherty. Like, oh, no way. I've got a cousin who's called Doherty. What's your uncle's name? John. Yeah, that's the one. I mean, it's super easy to do. Like, there's been a lot of nights out where like the dare has been, oh, go and pretend that you know that person. That's how psychic Sally does it. I'm amazing at that game. Cold calling. Like, I definitely went to school with you. Go on, what school did you go to? Yeah, yeah of course, that's the one I went to too. Oh my god. Did he have that guy for geography? The maths one. He was fucking creepy. Yeah, like they're, they're all, all creepy. Yup. Easily done. So <laughs> prior to this. Because Burke and Hare had continued to bicker, mostly about division of money and who was doing the most work and things like that, Burke now and Helen McDougall, where they were living, they set up their spare room to have lodgers so that they could be getting their own victims to come. They actually had a couple staying at the time, James and Anne Gray. So when Mary Doherty was alone in the city and they wanted to lure her back, they were like, right, James, and can you go and stay at the Hare's lodging house just for tonight? It'll be fine. We need to do some stuff to the room. So they'd left. And it would have been totally fine if the Greys weren't absolutely shit at packing their stuff up. <laughs> um, and they headed back the next day because they had to pick up some belongings that they'd left behind in like the when room. You, when you leave a charger behind the bedside table. Yes. Nightmare. I do it all the time. So when they arrived at the boarding house, they were told they weren't allowed back in the room. Tough. That's policy. You're done. Now, they weren't having this, so they just waited around until no one was watching them and headed into the room anyway. I like their style. I know. They seem like proper busybodies. Like, well, my things are in the room. We're going back to the room. What is happening? Um, So there they found... I mean, I don't know what they'd lost, 
because they found the body of Marjorie or Mary Doherty underneath the bed mm. of something that needed to be properly looked for. <laughs> and the Greys reported this to the police. And at the time, having a fixed government-controlled police force was a relatively new thing. The London Metropolitan wouldn't be started until the 1830s. So the police at the time, although they were in charge of investigating crimes, their job role wasn't quite as specific. They would had to do other things like lamplighting. Pop in the local pub for a pint. Yeah, I mean, they weren't... Their job was mainly to keep the streets ordered, like things like, like I say, lighting the lamps, things like little things like that. Yeah. It was just a general presence rather than the hard investigating teams. So by the time they got around to going to have a look in the boarding house, Burke and Hare had managed to take the body to Surgeon Square and get it sold. But they did go there and discovered it the next day. William Burke and Helen McDougall, William Hare and Margaret Hare were all arrested. They didn't have their story straight at all. Mm. The fact they all gave such conflicting they had 24 account- hours. They gave such conflicting accounts and mixed up stories that the authorities were convinced of their guilt. And partly because the men had such rivalry between them that they didn't have the nous to deny. They just blamed the person. Hmm. That vindictive that they couldn't say, no, we, together, we had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I was there, it was his fucking fault. <laughs> I mean, that is a ten-year-old's defence. Like, yeah, I was there, but it wasn't me that did the kicking. Like, just say you were in the toilets. Like, don't even place yourself <laughs> at the scene. They know nothing. So, like I'd mentioned earlier, because a corpse was not really... Selling of the corpse was shady but if they hadn't stolen it from the grave and they hadn't murdered it that's technically okay yeah they needed the evidence of the actual murder and that was purely circumstantial so they could just say she died while she was here and having the body was fine exactly so the main evidence they actually had was the greys identifying mary doherty and later janet brown the friend of mary patterson she identified some of mary's clothes in the lodging house that obviously Margaret Hare was just wearing now. I think we'd had that before where we said, like, you know, bespoke clothing is the way forward. It's like when Rose West was wearing the their lodger's clothes after they'd offered Just them. write your name and everything. <laughs> Indelible mark. Do it anyway. You might think that pair of black socks is specific to your child. No, I am not going to learn all the socks of all the children. Look after your own socks, write your name in it. That's just a pet hate of mine. <laughs> So if they were going to get any sort of conviction, they needed something else. And the prosecution offered William and Margaret Hare immunity if they would testify against the Burks. So because of the discontentment that was brewing between them, Hare didn't need much time at all or persuading to just drop his partner in it in order to save himself. So at the trial, William Burke was found guilty of three murders out of the four that he was charged with and sentenced to death. Helen McDougall was found not proven, which was a little... So in the Scottish law at the time, you could be guilty, you could be not guilty, or you could have the verdict not proven. I quite like that. So Because if you're found not guilty, you can't be tried for that crime again yeah. unless there's new evidence that comes to light. You can't say, oh, we didn't really do a good job, let me try again. Yeah. Whereas the the not proven verdict was basically saying that the prosecution hadn't done their job well enough. The prosecution hadn't been able to do it, so she could have been tried with that crime again, is my understanding. Yeah. But in theory, she still goes off free. Yeah. So out of the four, Burke's the only one that's taking the fall for this, and he's sentenced to death. He was hanged in front of a crowd of thousands on January 28th, 1829, and afterwards, 
let the punishment fit the crime, he was taken and dissected in a public theatre. Was that for science or was that one just for fun? They said it was for science, (laughs) but I bet they jabbed him a bit too hard and, you know. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, His skeleton was then put on display at Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, where it still is to this day. Along with um, some other examples of souvenirs that the anatomy students kept, one of them took some of his skin and had a book bound with it. Printing the imaginative title, Burke's Skin Pocket Book. I really want want it for my guest book. No! Oh, that would be cool, This is the skin of a criminal. Yeah. It represents our love. (laughs) Please sign it. So the rest of the gang... Helen, Margaret and William all left Scotland and fled and the reports of them settling all over the place, some in England, Ireland and some even saying that Helen emigrated to Australia. Dr Robert Knox as well, he couldn't be charged again because there's no way of proving that he knew that the victims he was getting, that the bodies he was getting were from murder. He just knew there was a cadaver here. Yeah. But his reputation wasn't so good. He was rejected from various different medical establishments in Edinburgh And so eventually he moved to London, where he worked in a cancer hospital, but did achieve some success within the last decade of his life. He wrote a book on fish and fishing in the glens of Scotland. (laughs) Um, So quite a segue. Following this, though, 1832, the Anatomy Act was brought in, which allowed any unclaimed bodies, so dead bodies from workhouses, from prisons, could all just be automatically used for science, as well as relatives were now allowed to donate their family members to science and the medical school would pay for their burial afterwards. So this totally negated any need for body snatching and was able to put a stop to it. That's That's it. it. Donate your organs, even your eyes. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so 
my murderess is Catherine Hayes. Um, I used quite a few books for this, but the most detailed... I can read! But the most detailed was Lives of Remarkable Criminals by Arthur L. Hayward. So I just wanted to make sure that he got his dues. Arthur, cheers for this. Thanks, Um, So Catherine Hall, as she was originally born was born near Birmingham in 1690. So it's an oldie, so we can take the piss. I always feel a bit more comfortable with an older crime. Because, yeah, it's not as upsetting. No one can be bothered to draw a family tree that big. Yeah. (laughs) They've all given up after the 1800s. So, average child, she was in a really poor family. uh, Poor enough that they received assistance from the parish, which I think basically was the oldie day equivalent of a food bank. Um, At age 15, she got totally hot. She was described as good-looking and voluptuous. Nice. Catherine had... And voluptuous with a capital V. So she... and But she'd had very little education. So you she don't need it hot, when you're voluptuous. A hottie but a thickie. Pay with that wiggle. Uh, but she did have a violent and turbulent temperament. Shit, I think I'm her reincarnated. Yeah. Basically, she was always having a Mardi. Yup. Yup. Got that down. Uh, for all our non-local listeners, Mardi means a hissy a fit. Tantrum. So the other night, I'd been to my friend's wedding, and I was really drunk. And I was in a taxi with my friend Will, and I was like, I want a kebab, I want a kebab, I want a kebab. And he's like, God, you're such hard work. And I went, I'm not hard kebab. <laughs> That's it now. That's the joke forever. Just literally the last word I heard, but I'm still thinking about kebab. But also, didn't you get so drunk a few weeks ago that you decided that you didn't want to chew anymore and you had to save your life? Like, I'm going to let it drop into my throat and if I choke, you're going to have to save me. <laughs> you did. That's my, that's my favourite story at the moment. It's like, sit up, you're going to die. Now. <laughs> Feed I'm me. not chewing like some sort of dickhead. <laughs> yeah, what kind of pleb do you think I am? So, in 1705, some soldiers came along to the village and Catherine decided that she was screwing everything and she's going to go with them. Getting one of those. Yeah. So, she went with them to the village of Great Ormsley and... Not like crap Ormsley. Great Ormsley. This is the better one. They've got a pond with so many ducks on. But I think basically they realised that... Their food bank is the best. (laughs) I think they realised that having a 15-year-old travelling with you who has a bad temper is probably too much for them, so they ditched her. Which, fair play. Unsurprising. So she spent the next few years earning money as both a sex worker and doing also domestic service. So she was just scraping by, basically, however she could. At age 23, she began to work for a farmer and his wife. So that was Mr and Mrs Hayes who had two sons. John Hayes was the eldest, age 21. So Lock him up. There are differing accounts here. Some say he was absolutely besotted with her and he proposed to her and he was really excited. Some say she seduced him. They would say that. Yeah. It takes two to tango. I know. It's not like he was just... I mean, she comes along with her voluptuous bod, but it's not, it's not seduction just by existing. Yeah, it's not... No, you fancied her. Yeah. He wanted that. Yeah. So, knowing his parents wouldn't want them to get married, they agreed to get engaged, but they kept it a secret. John Hayes 
organise the wedding. I can't get Luke to do shit. Whoa. Bless him. He did the whole lot. That's the biggest shock of this podcast. <laughs> so he pretended to his mother that he wanted tools from Worcester. Um, so he's... How is he organising this wedding? Carving the vicar? <laughs> What's he doing? I need tools for this wedding. So uh, I think I'm going to that... hammer her as my wife. <laughs> he used that as a front for why he was gone for the day. Oh, so he didn't need yeah. tools for the wedding. So he saved the love and he disappeared and they went off to get married. But they, they did get married, but they had the most dramatic wedding night. So basically the wedding went fine. After the wedding, they ran into the soldiers that she'd been dicking around with seven years before. And they decided to fuck around with them both. <gasps> so because they knew that they had to have sex on the wedding night for it to be legitimate or until they had sex it wasn't legitimately married yeah so they (gasps) went into the bedroom straight after they'd gone in there for their wedding night oh it's bedtime see you later they went in they broke into the room dragged john out and then told him that they were signing him up for the army immediately they were like you're enlisted right off we go that is not cool bants. This is br- this crazy. Like, how whiny had she been as a 15-year-old that they were like, do you know what, let's just fuck up the rest of her life. Well, unless they were like, oh, she's our mate, this will be this will be hilarious. I don't know. Let's ruin the one wedding night she's going to have. Yeah. This will be a joke. This will be I'm going to do this to you. <laughs> so. I'm going to th- drag you out of your bed. <laughs> like, you're coming with me. We're joining Pussy Riot. <laughs> we're going on tour. <laughs> right now. No sex for you. Uh, so this incident basically forced John into the position where he had to call his mum and dad and say, "How did he call them in the 1600s?" Please help me. Well, I assume he sent a letter. Shouted it. <laughs> sent an owl. Yeah. So he had to tell them about the marriage, and he had to tell them about Fire the soldiers. Fire beacon, smoke signal. <laughs> Imagine that conversation. John and his, his da- John's dad and his friend turned up and basically made them sensible of their errors. They basically threatened the shit out of these soldiers because I imagine they were kind of some prissy, posh boys who joined the army. And then How I- long did this prank go on for that he was able to send word home to his mum and dad? <laughs> I know. They were able to come back and they're still in the situation. Pretty much. Uh, but two burly farmers turn up, threatened to beat the shit out of them. Um, and they just gave in. like Yeah. These, and they were like, okay. these sabres are made of wood. <laughs> yes, Mr. Hayes. I'm sorry, Mr. Hayes. So Hayes Celia, uh, the father, then also gave us some money to start his own business, despite Just reward his bad behaviour. Despite hating Catherine. So Catherine, shortly after the marriage, began to have her temper again. She wasn't being cute anymore. She called John tight. She was slagging him off to the neighbours. But sometimes they were very affectionate and loving. I mean it kinda of sounds a bit like a normal They're marriage. Really to bored. Me. Yeah. So they moved to Tyburn Road in London. Basically, she insisted, let's go to London. This is um, a quite a big road. It's now Oxford Street. Oh. Like a big shopping area. Uh, they sold sea coal, which is basically coal from the sea, and chandlery ware. That's boat shit. Boat shit. I know that because of when I worked at the marina. Oh, yeah. The chandlery. I mean, I don't know if that was a really bad business decision in London, Miles from the sea. They or got the it, Thames, innit? Or if it was a really... We had a whale in there! Of course we need boat shit. <laughs> Maybe it was a really good idea because no one's going from London together in sea coal. So, John was doing his best to make his wife happy, but she still had a temper. She was shouting at him. Uh, she, she was getting quite abusive. 
Now, John did business with a lot of country folks as well. So he would lend money to people from the countryside that he knew and then he'd get more in return. So basically he set up his own bank. And yeah. um, Catherine would speak very highly of John to most of those. But if they didn't know him very well, she would talk about him having a violent temper, being abusive, being oh, an aggressive husband. The truth comes out. There's no... If it's not true, don't tell people if it's not true. Unless she just wanted sympathy. I don't know, there's no... I don't know either way. Maybe she wanted sympathy. After they made quite a lot of money, they decided to increase this by taking a lodger. So they were like, let's just capitalise. So they took in Thomas Billings, a tailor. Now, Billings and Catherine soon became shagged. I mean, he's living in a little house, John's out, opportunities happen. I mean, I'm going to say that this is the problem with not having sex before marriage. If it's rubbish, you're tied in then. And if you really enjoy it, what are you going to do? Have crap sex for the rest of your life. The labours told John that his wife was making the beast with two backs with another man. Um, That's a phrase I've not heard for a while. Bring it back. Shakespeare! As as someone said something to you and you're just now determined to prove to people that you can actually read. (laughs) Did someone say something mean on Twitter? You want me to get them for you? Yeah. There was a big row anyway. The Labour's reported a a big row between the two of them. But they just carried on with their life. With uh, He didn't move out. He just stayed there. So I think she probably said, it was a mistake, a mistake. It only happened once. They're never going to do it again. And then they took in another lodger... Named Wood. Just Wood. <laughs> no, he had a first name. Edward. Woodward. Edward Wood. Edward Woodward. Billings, Wood and Catherine came up with a plan. Like all the best plans, it involved alcohol. So Billings challenged John to a drinking competition. He said, we're going to get six bottles of fine wine. If you can drink all of the wine, then I will pay for the wine. If you don't drink all the wine without being sick then you have to pay for the wine. That's not a fun game for anyone. No, it just involves drinking too much. Just buy but only one... one person is drinking a lot. Yeah, just buy one bottle yourself. No one has to Six. do any of this. Six bottles. That's not a challenge I'd take on, I'm afraid. Well, John said yes. He said he could do it. So they went to the Brown's Head in New Bond Street. They bought the wine. Catherine, again, on the way, said, come on, let's do this. There's no winner in this game. The worst game ever. Um, So Wood, at this point, was a little bit unsure about the plan. He said it was inhuman to kill a man when he was drunk. Yeah, so the plan was that they were just going to get him drunk and murder him. But six bottles is excessive. I mean, how shit's the wine? You could have done the same wager on three bottles of wine and we'd be fucked. Pretty much. Or wait for him to go to sleep. That's also true. Nobody needs any wine. Yeah, so basically they peer pressured uh, because Billings and uh, Catherine were so up for it, they peer pressured Wood. Do you remember Dare? Did you ever do Dare? Drug Abuse Resistance Education? Yes. Well, they convinced you that you were constantly going to get peer pressure to take drugs and stuff. It never happened. I'm so disappointed. No one's offering me free shit all the time. I was ready and waiting and no one ever gave me free drugs. No. And I want paying for them. So said no to drugs. Don't do drugs. It'll make your organs shit when you donate them. So that as as John Hayes drank the wine, they watched and they had beer to keep their spirits up and to break break the tension of just watching a man get. Drunk. I want a more of a party mood with this murder. It's starting to become a bit of a downer watching a man die. 
Let's just raise the tempo slightly. So Hayes became very merry. He was singing. He was dancing around the room. He wasn't, Emma, doing commander rolls on the sofa. Nick, there's only a certain level of drunk where I do commando rolls on the sofa. <laughs> and now that I've had glass all over the floor, I won't be doing it again. Those days are gone. Those days are behind me. They're a whole week behind me. <laughs> So, Catherine, worried that he wasn't completely out of it, ordered more wine, which he did drink. So he'd already done six bottles? Yeah. This wine is crap! But uh, it is London wine. Which is probably bloody expensive. It's probably Thames water. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, he drank so much, he was out of it, and then he fell asleep um, on the bed, basically almost in a coma, I imagine. So... Billings grabbed a coal hatchet. Sea coal hatchet. A sea coal hatchet. And he struck John on the back of the head. Fractured his skull. In the pub. They'd gone to buy the wine and they'd gone home. They'd gone home. Smash. Yeah. Wood then repeated this, but he was already dead. So there was no point. Just wanted to go. Now, Mrs. Springate, which I think sounds like a Dickens character... Um, she came bounding down the stairs to inquire about the noise and they assured her that the noise had stopped and the party was over. Now, she is a busybody. She comes back a couple of times in this story. I imagine her to be in a big floral dress. Moo moo. Yeah. Uh, the three now <laughs> hadn't really thought the plan three because they didn't know what to do with the body. They no, probably you- thought he was going to win the drinking bet. <laughs> Six bottles of wine. Yeah, it could go either way. So, I mean, if you're going to do a murder, plan what to do with the body. Standard. Uh, So they decided to cut off John's head. Just the head. Just the head. So Catherine held the bucket under the head. Billings held the body and would cut it with a pen knife, which surprisingly worked. That would have taken ages. Don't make them like they used to. I suppose a pen knife when a pen was a quill. So it's really just a giant... Like Those things were big. A giant quill knife. Uh, so they poured the blood down a wooden sink um, and then they flushed water down to get rid of it. But Mrs Springate still found clots of blood in the morning, but she just chucked them away. But remember, this was a time when London was filthy anyway. People were just butchering animals in their houses. Like, it was disgusting. Catherine thought it'd be best to boil the head so that was her idea boiling meat is never an idea no but the men thought that would be disgusting and difficult that's not the worst bit of what you've done (laughs) they decided that they were going to throw it in the Thames bloody Mrs Springate came down again hearing them leaving to find out what was going on and Catherine told her that she needs to watch it or she's going to get pen knife to the neck pretty (laughs) soon But uh, Catherine told her that her husband had gone out of town at this point. So she started building this story that he'd left, he'd stormed out. It was really the men just carrying his head down to the Thames. They threw the head into the Thames and then the body they took a couple of days later and they put that in a pond at Marleybone. So the head was discovered the next day. They obviously... They They just threw it onto the little bit of pebbles at the bottom. They just lobbed it. They probably even wrapped it Landed on a boat, probably. (laughs) Landed on that whale that <laughs> swam on there. So, in order to find the owner... There's that, a head in my blowhole. This is this is my favourite bit. So, to find the owner, local magistrates decided it would be a good idea. They popped it on top of a pole, stuck it in a churchyard, just hoping someone would come and recognise it. Has anyone seen this head? Like when you lose a glove and someone puts it on the fence face like it's doing a little wave. 
that is exactly the same reasoning. So he just left it in this churchyard. Now people started coming to see the head because they were like, oh, maybe it's someone I know. Let's go yeah. have a look. So they all started um, visiting the head to see who it could have belonged to. Now several days later, Bennett, an apprentice organ maker for the king, went to see the head. He said he believed it to be Mr. Hayes. It doesn't say how they knew each other, but it said that they were well acquainted. After the Jimmy Savile episode, I'm extremely suspicious of how anyone knows anyone who's young. He was a loan <laughs> shark, though, maybe. Yeah, maybe he lent him money. So he told Mrs. Hayes, and she went into a complete rage and told him John was fine and that he should stop spreading rumours and that it was okay. No! That, she should have said, yes, it is, and like fallen into hysteria and gone over the top, because then now... If someone else identifies it as him, she is prime suspect number one. Absolutely. Whereas she could have been like, look, someone killed my husband. And he's a loan shark. He's got a lot of enemies, possibly. Yeah. Oh, Catherine. <laughs> so, Mr. Patrick also believed it to be Mr. Hayes, another guy who knew him. But Billings was there when he was in the pub talking about it. And Billings said, no, Mr. Hayes, I know him. He's, I know he's fine. So he also tied into this story. A lot of other people came to see Mrs. Hayes and said, oh, we think it's your husband. And each was told, no, it's absolutely nonsense, go away. The head started getting a bit gammy. I bet. Yeah. So it was taken down. They put it in a jar with spirits to preserve it. So now it's his head blobbing in a jar. But if anyone came along and said, can I have a look at the head? They said, yeah, they let him in. So now it's just making its way around the locals. They always look weird in the jars as well because the perspective totally yeah. changes when you see any, like, yeah, pickled things. Like They just all look like blowfish in the end. Yeah. So Catherine moved to another lodgings with both wooden billings and a woman. Um, I love how friendly they are. Like, what a gang. It's yeah. like always sunny in Philadelphia, but with murder. <laughs> uh, so she told everyone that her husband had uh, murdered a man who had owed him money. So she'd come up with this completely different tale that had nothing to do with the head. Then she said that he was in prison now. Oh no, that he'd run away to Portugal to avoid going to prison. So that he was a murderer. No Um, one comes back from Portugal. Labours were completely suspicious and they reported her and a warrant was issued for her arrest because they said, what is this bullshit she's concocting? I was saying, just pretend that he got murdered by someone else. That's obvious plan number one. I love how the neighbours are involved in every step of this tale. It's like, the neighbours didn't think so. so the neighbours got involved. The only link is the fact that they live ridiculously close to them. And they're like, I know everything. And if I don't know it, I'll winkle it out of them. So they arrived at the house to arrest the three of them. And when they got there, it looked like Billings and Catherine had been sharing a bed. Because he was sitting on Catherine's bed when they got in there. They both denied it, and Billings said that he'd been sitting on the... How is this relevant? We've come here to arrest you for murder, but wait, has anyone been having fun while we've been gone? Although it could be relevant, because I guess that would be a motive for the killing, because she's getting it elsewhere. And they'd been living together for a long time. When they went in, um, he was sitting on the bed, um, and he argued that he was sitting on her bed because he was trying to mend his stockings. Uh, what they also did was arrested Mrs. Springate as well. That busybody. Well, she knows all the answers. That's what happens when you stick your nose in. People are going to be like, well, you seem to know a fucking lot about it. Yeah, apparently. She might as well have been right there. <laughs> so Catherine, in an attempt to show that she was innocent, asked to see the head at this point. 
of who they were claiming to be her husband. And when she saw it, she went berserk. So she was kissing the glass, throwing herself on the floor, shouting, my husband, my husband, he's dead. Now the men showing her decided that the best course of action for this hysterical woman to calm her down was to grab the head by the hair and pull it out of the jar. So she ran over this rank old head and um, started kissing it and then basically fainted, probably from the smell of the head. They must have been taking the piss there, seeing how far they could push her. Maybe they thought that she was lying. They were like, do you know what? Let's test this bitch and see if she'll actually kiss the mouldy head. Maybe. So during this experience, um, so while she was uh, looking at the head, the body was actually discovered by Mr. Huddle. Is this a Dickens story? Mr. Huddle! So He's a little round man who waddles when he walks. That, that is such a Dickens thing, though. You can just imagine the character, can't you? Just sort of huddled over, looking at this body, going, oh, what could this possibly be? Uh, so that was lying in the pond. Now, the local constable did the maths. Head plus body equals... Missing person! We found all the pieces! <laughs> so, Catherine uh, was questioned about this. She said she knew nothing and she was taken to Newgate, which was the London prison that a lot of people ended up at. Now, when she went to court. At the trial, she blamed Wood and Billings for everything. So, they were found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. Billings and Wood were. Yeah. But not Catherine. Well, her trial was still to come. Now, rumours began, now this will be a surprise, that Billings was Catherine's son. What? So, they, people just started saying that he was her son. Now, she said he was her own flesh and blood, what? But she didn't say, he's my son. She just said that they were related. Why have they been shagging then? Gross. So... <laughs> Maybe her husband found out about the shagging. Catherine was tried for... How pe- young was he? Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. So, Cat- Where's that police officer who's good with the maths? <laughs> yeah. Come and sort this conundrum out. So Catherine was on trial... Not for murder, but for petty treason, because she was seen as a traitor to her husband, who should have been her master. So it's slightly different. Now, the sentence for this, for men, was to be hanged, drawn and quartered, which basically was where they would strip them nude, they would hang them till they were nearly dead, then they would emasculate them, behead them, and then chop them into four. Now, for women, this wasn't done because it was seen as immodest, because it involved nudity. So the sentence for... Free the nipple! So, sentence for the woman was burning. So... So much worse. She believed... Especially when you're burnt, like, from alive. Yeah. Like, hanging until nearly dead, you're unconscious. So the rest of it is. But burning from alive is so much more painful. Disgraceful. I mean, I have not been through either. But I'm going to say that. I mean, I burnt the tiniest part of my wrist on the glue gun today. Yeah. And you'd think it was first (laughs) degree burn. Winded like a little bitch. It was stinging! (laughs) She argued that she wasn't in the room for the murder. The men who had done it had already been sentenced to be hanged or um, would actually die in prison. And she said that she'd been treated terribly by her husband anyway, that he'd been incredibly abusive. And she believed that because she hadn't actually Why done... Why did you kiss the head then? <laughs> yeah. 
would be my response. So, yeah. He treated you well. So why did you kiss the head? Good point. Case closed. There's a hole in this story. So she believed that because she hadn't actually physically whopped him on the head, that she couldn't be done for murder. So she kind of just was just... Telling the story as it was. Believe. So she was found guilty. Of murder. Of petty treason. Oh. She begged and begged that she would be killed another way rather than being burned. Told you. But it was ignored. So she was sentenced to death by burning. Now a lot of this has come from a really old book. It's so old. That did it, it re- have like the double S as a big F? Yeah. Oh it did. I hate reading oh, that. It's stressing me out. So a lot of this later stuff comes from a really old text that I looked at called the Tyburn Chronicle. Which is basically about people who were killed at Tyburn. It's really interesting. So days before her execution, Catherine stated that Billings was her son. And she had had him. So she said that she'd had him after she'd married John, but that John had said that he didn't love the child and he had it sent away to her relations. But when they questioned John's family, no one could confirm anything about this. So well, didn't Billings just appear as a lodger? Surely John would have been... A yeah, suspicious. yeah, that's exactly right. You look a little bit like my son, so, and my wife appears to love you. Yeah, so Billings believed that he was related to Catherine, but he said that he didn't know who his father was. He didn't believe it to be John Hayes. But he also said that she had never said that he was her son until after she'd been sentenced to death. So he hadn't been hanged yet. He'd been sentenced to be hanged. Well, I'm not being funny, Billings, but who the fuck brought you up? Because now all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, maybe this person's my mum. Well, <laughs> who was your mum when you were growing up? Because I'm pretty sure that person's probably still your mum. The general agreement was that due to their ages, that he couldn't be her child from John Hayes from the marriage, but that he could be her son from an early relationship. And that she had had a baby outside of wedlock so Catherine knowing that she is going to be burned to death attempted to kill herself with poison several days before her execution but some other woman in the prison took a whiff of it got a bit on her mouth said oh it's starting to burn worked out what she was doing and threw it away I reckon it was probably Mrs Springate she sounds like it she's still there squeezing through the bars being like what's going on here then so she couldn't kill herself with the poison it was uh, chucked away what nosy fucking bitches hello like oh you've got a drink have you give it (laughs) so Catherine was made to watch Billings along with others of the same batch they did it in a whole group howling before her own death so if he was her son that would have been particularly traumatic she was then chained around the waist she had a rope put around her neck and then wood piled around her they then set the wood alight then the plan was to pull the rope tight once she starts screaming to strangle her but the the fire was too hot and the guy doing that dropped the string so in three hours she was ashes that's a traumatic way to end it but some bloke heard about the murderer and wrote a song do you want to hear it to the tune of... Don't stop me now. Say so, I'm going to say it. I don't You're going to read could... it as a poem? Yeah. Okay. In Tyburn Road, a man there lived, a just and honest man, and there he might have lived still, if so had pleased his wife. Doesn't rhyme. Oh, gosh. Sure. 
But she to vicious ways inclined, a life most wicked led, with tailors and the tinkers too. She oft defiled his bed. Oh, so now we're going to rhyme it, are we? <laughs> Apparently. Maybe I'm just saying the rhyme wrong. Man, wife, no. <laughs> Full twice a day to church he went, as so devout would be. Sure never was a saint on earth, if that no saint was he. This vexed his wife, and to the heart she was of wrath so full, that finding no hole in his coat, she picked one in his skull. But then her heart began to relent, and grieved she was so sore, that quarter to him for to give, she cut him into four. Wait. She didn't. Let's go back to that line. That quarter to him for to give. Yeah, I don't get it. They're just stringing words together. That's like fridge poetry. My magnetic (laughs) fridge poetry is what he's done there. All in the dark and dead of light, these quarters she conveyed, and in the ditch at Marybone, his Murraybone she laid. Play on words there. His head at Westminster she threw, all in the Thames so wide. Says she, my dear, the wind sets fair and you may have the tide. But heaven, whose power no limits knows, on earth or on the main, soon caused the head for to be thrown upon the land again. This head being found, the justices, their heads together laid, and all agreed there must have been some body to this head. Well done. You've (laughs) earned your qualifications. (laughs) I'm sure this head probably had a body. But since nobody could be found, hurt nobody, nobody, high mounted on a shelf, they e'en set up the head to be a witness for itself. Next, that it no self-murder was. Go again. Next, that it no self-murder was. Oh, self-murder hyphenated, yeah. so suicide. That's a word you could have used. The case. The new thesaurus. The case itself explains, for no man could cut off his head and throw it in the tub. Ere many days have gone past, the deed at length was known, and Catherine, she confessed at last the fact to be her own. God prosper long our noble king, our lives and safety's whole, and grant that we may warning take by Catherine Hayes's fall. How annoying were those times that you couldn't even write a poem without having to get the king involved? Yeah. Like, his ego is so fragile. Like, what's that? You're singing something. Put me in it. <laughs> yeah. Chill the fuck out, king. So, following this tale of, uh, I mean, it's got a bit of everything, incest, burning, all that stuff. Uh, so, William Thackeray, a novelist, based a book, and he called it Catherine, and it's about this tale. Now, the idea of the book was that he make. Uh, people who commit crimes look like terrible people and he fucked it up because it made her sound quite nice and her little friends they were all like oh they're a lovely group that's what i said (laughs) yeah you did that too so he slagged the book off after he wrote it and hated it forever like it wasn't me it was my brain and hand that made me do it (laughs) so that's the story of Catherine hayes thanks this it's all right so we would like to give a big thank you to our Patreons for this month who have been so kind and generous in uh, supporting the podcast and you guys make it happen. So we would like to thank Sandra, Clay Anderson, Josh, Hannah Mabry. Are we doing last names? Yeah, because there could be anyone. Megan Kelly. Storm Lightning's Bane. <laughs> Trudy Johns. Monica Martinson. Tim from the History Dweebs podcast. Cassandra Caventes. Jenny Morrison. Laura Heathcock. Hayley Ellington. Lorna Violet. Jim Martin. Erin Klein. Hannah Orangutan. It's Oregante. William Muir. Elizabeth Thurlow. Peter Falconer. Jacob Hodge. 
Rebecca Pope. Thanks, guys. That's so great of you. And if you would like to become a patron of ours and get a shout out on the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash slaughter the pod. Thanks, team. Uh, please do continue to follow us on Twitter, Facebook. Join the conversations. We have some brilliant Savile discussion last week. Yeah, thank you for listening. Remember, guys, listening to Slaughter does not make you a psycho. Kissing severed heads does. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.